This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, inequality and welfare reporter at The Guardian Australia, Luke Enriquez-Gomez joined me to talk about rising inequality in Australia. We explore how the reductions in JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments have been affecting Australians, as well as the difficulties faced in this recession, particularly by older women. Then, historian Dr Chloe Ward from RMIT joined me to talk about the latest in UK politics, including the British government's threats of a no-deal Brexit with the EU, as well as the recent surge in COVID-19 cases. The UK is currently recording up to 16,000 positive cases daily. Then, finally, historian Professor Michelle Arrow from Macquarie University joined me to talk about the changes to university funding and why we must value and fund a thriving humanities. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins. It's great to be with you this Tuesday morning, as I do every Tuesday. It's also great to welcome back onto the program uh, Guardian reporter Luke Enriquez-Gomez, and he is the welfare and inequality reporter at The Guardian. You can um, check out his work on their website. We're going to be chatting today about um, the state of inequality in Australia, given the pandemic-induced recession that we are experiencing at the moment, and particularly looking about the looking at the experiences of those who are unemployed um, and those who are, you know, severely disadvantaged by the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment. Also, looking at the effects of the government's decision to reduce the JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments. Um, And, of course, JobKeeper will be wrapping up um, early next year. So that's another um, thing to be thinking about into the future is what the effects of that might be. But um, we'll talk all about that and also look at the cashless um, debit card that a number of um, people have been put into on in trial sites. And uh, Luke and I have discussed this in the past, but um, there are some new developments on that front. So we'll talk about that as well. But I welcome Luke now. And thanks so much for joining me. No, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on again, uh, Amy. Good to uh, good to see you. You too. And um, I know it's been a while that we've actually <laughs> seen each other in person. Yes. But uh, how are you doing in lockdown in Melbourne? Um, not too bad. Um, I mean, clearly it's a tough time for everybody. But um, no, it's uh, we. It seems like we're getting towards the uh, the end of it hopefully and so that's positive and um you know the the work that I do makes it very easy to remember that I certainly don't have it uh, the hardest out of everybody so that I guess that is helpful in a sense yes it really is and um and that's what I hope we can draw out and remind everyone um, listening, and it certainly has reminded me looking and reading through your articles recently. Um, I did want to point out um, a couple of things before we get into our conversation, and that was um, that the economy that we we have as a society at the moment isn't doing too well, and that's um, an understatement given the pandemic, and we've seen uh, we did see lockdowns across Australia initially, but of course, Victoria has been significantly affected far more than any other state. And um, it's important to note that even in um, Guardian columnists, um, the Guardian columnist Jeg 
Greg Jericho's article today when he's looking at the state of um, the Australian economy really says that you have to exclude Victoria um, to actually have kind of a consistent picture of what's going on in the economy because of Victoria's lockdown. It's really kind of skews the data when you do include Victoria because um, in terms of hours worked that were lost during the pandemic, um, about 75% of those have been brought back in the other states. But in Victoria, um, there really has been no recovery as yet. And it's not that surprising really to think um, that that would be the case, given that we are still um, in Melbourne, at least in four lockdowns, and um, we're only seeing a gradual easing now. So with that in mind, and um, understanding the fact that um, as Greg reports in that article today, um, full-time work remains at record lows. So the actual recovery we have seen has really been in part-time jobs. It hasn't been in full-time work, which is another concerning element um, given the uh, state of underemployment was already quite poor in Australia. Um, I wanted to talk about the experiences of those people that you've been speaking with um, in Australia, but also those who you've spoken with in Victoria and um, maybe use their experiences as a way to understand the situation for people, particularly those who are unemployed. And um, I want to go straight to older women, which has been um, a demographic that you've focused on recently and for, I guess, a very clear and important reason. So could you share with us why you've been focusing on this um, demographic and why older women have been really harshly affected uh, during this pandemic, but also before it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that a lot of the advocacy and welfare groups have been talking about this issue um, for quite a while now, for a couple of years, and really trying to get people to take notice of it. And um, unfortunately, as is often the case in this uh, policy area, they haven't had much luck. But um, so there was a, a report came out um, from the Parliamentary Budget Office uh, earlier in the month, and I just thought it was frankly quite unbelievable, to be honest. It, it looked at who's been on job seeker payments for the past three decades and how who the ordinary person who might be on those payments has shifted so dramatically. Um, so basically, you know, women over 50 were about 5% of all people on JobSeeker in 2001, and now they're about 20%. And at the same time, um, the people who are, are spending more time on JobSeeker payment uh, tend to be, as I said, older women, and they are less likely to get off the payment than other people. Um, so we've just seen this massive shift in who the ordinary person on what was once the job seeker payment is. Um, and as we know from, I guess, the uh, hiring discrimination that older workers face and then also gender discrimination that um, older women uh, trying to get into, back into the workforce often face, um, you know, it's a problem that is uh, not easily solved and that's sort of illustrated by the fact that um, we seem to have now, before the pandemic, a subset of people on unemployment benefits who um, get on it at the age of about 50 or 55 and they just never get off it until they get to the pension age, which, as we also know, is, um, you know, being um, lifted um, every six months. 
So I spoke to some. Uh, I spoke to one woman, Deborah Jacobs, uh, who's uh, in Adelaide, um, and you know she is sixty three. You know, the sort of the don't want to fall into the old tropes and cliches, but had worked all her life until two thousand and eight when she she lost a job that she had. Um, you know, working in a sort of child support um, service, and she hasn't worked since. She's had medical uh, issues in that time. Um, but really, she's just had no luck getting back into the workforce, despite a really varied um, employment history before that. You know, she worked in, um, she'd been a bookkeeper, she'd tried out massage and, and counselling, she's got various TAFE degrees, um, she she opened a second-hand furniture shop in the 2000s, um, but since the GFC, she she's just had no luck getting back into work. She now has some serious medical conditions, which um, we know uh, is also the other clear change since, you know, since about the year 2000, 2005. It's now about 40% of people who are on job seeker payment who have some sort of disability or, or medical condition or chronic illness. So um, in Deborah's case, she was already finding it incredibly difficult to get on into a job before the pandemic and now, as she said, said to me, you know, she's facing a much more difficult job market than before the pandemic and, as we saw in the budget, incentives for, for um, employers to hire younger workers. Now, there are good reasons for why you might focus your attentions on, attention on younger workers. We know that in the GFC, they, you know, youth unemployment never really recovered while other employment cohorts did but um you know for people like her i I mean you really do wonder and you 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 worry that these are people who are just spending years and years and years on what you know what was at once about 40 dollars a day and we don't know what it will be you know when the pandemic is kind of starting to subside into next year um you know her story is just um emblematic of so many so many like hundreds of thousands of of women now who at an older age just you know seem to be sort of left out of the job market and left on a payment which is incredibly difficult to live on Mm. and the payment wasn't created for people to you know be on long term it it should have been a springboard um, in an ideal world to employment. Um, And if they, you know, actually did have a a disability, it would have meant that they would have um, traditionally before the Liberals and the Labor government um, made these changes and tightened the disability pension, they would have received a disability support pension. So um, it's something that we have spoken about previously is the fact that um, the unemployment benefit, which is lower than the disability support pension traditionally, um, has become this kind of you know, holding room or a, a waiting house for people to receive a different payment and, and hope to receive that different payment. So Deborah, for example, has applied for the disability pension multiple times but keeps getting knocked back, as you say, because um, according to them, according to the government or the um, department, her changing health means her conditions are not stabilised and mm. therefore she is not eligible. Yeah, that's right, and and that is a common uh, a common uh, experience that people have. 
Um, and what tends to happen and, and has happened to somebody like Deborah is, and it's a little bit um, technical, but basically, you know, if you want to get onto the disability support pension, you have to be able to prove that your condition is going to be the same for two years. If you can't prove that, you, you remain on job seeker. In order to, um, and then at the same time, you know, you, you're faced with this you know, good luck getting a job sort of situation. And then at the same time, um, you also, it, once your condition does stabilise, even if it's if it's not so severe that you get onto the disability pension automatically, you have to do this thing called a program of support, which basically means for 18 months you have to look for a job and you have to show that you've looked for a job for 18 months. Well, if you're so sick that you can't do that, then you don't get to the eight, you never complete the 18 months and so you can never get onto the disability support pension. So people are just sort of caught in between these or caught in between these sort of these two predicaments of like, well, uh, you know, if they could get a job, then their life would be a little bit better because they you would have a better income, but they can't look for a job because they're too unwell and then they can't get on the disability support pension because they can't look for work long enough to prove that they oh, they couldn't have got a job even if they tried sort of thing. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. talking to Deborah was quite heartbreaking really because um, she basically said, you know, I don't think I'm going to get a job. I, I, I've been trying for this long. I'm now really sick and I'm just waiting for the, the pension, but she's not going to be eligible for the pension until she's, she's 67, which is still four years away. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, and because of, um, you know, having health conditions and also having such a low income, you know, these things can kind of compound each other, can't they? It can kind of become a cycle where um, your health deteriorates because you don't have access to appropriate funds. Well, that's right. And, I mean, um, the uh, in Deborah's case, you know, she, she did um, – she told me that she had some health conditions which required her to um, – to have an operation and, and when she did, um, they gave her an iron infusion because uh, she was deficient in iron. Um, I spoke to another woman, um, uh, Lisa Carberry, who's um, the sort of focus of the podcast we did at The Guardian, which came out yesterday about, I guess, living on job seeker payment and the roller coaster ride that it's been this year. And she as well, um, you know, was anemic partly, she said, only partly, not entirely, but partly because of her diet meat is expensive and if you're living on a, a low income that's the first thing that goes in terms of what you decide to have for dinner the amount of people that i've spoken to who just say yeah i just eat two minute noodles where i can or i just eat um uh, just pasta and um with you know some sort of home brand based sauce just sort of as simple as possible avoid meat avoid fresh fruit and vegetables because it's expensive um that, you know, that does not make people, uh, you know, people struggle to be healthy when they can't afford um, a diet which is going to help them to, to achieve that. Mm, exactly. Um, I wanted to pick up on Lisa's story. She's 49 and um, she had a really horrible experience and multiple horrible experiences, really. It was kind of one after the other. And mm. um, it seemed that, 
you know, she was struggling to pay her rent on the the job seeker allowance or new start as it used to be known as, um, and also to pay um, for her car so that she could um, actually, you know, have access to a vehicle. Um, and she eventually ended up having to live in her car. So she was essentially homeless um, for quite a long time. That's right. So Lisa has a, st- a story which is, um, quite common as well for people who are maybe middle-aged um, or, you know, um, you know, not older but just a little bit older and have a parent that beca- becomes unwell. In her case, her mother, she moved back um, to Geelong to look after her mother. She'd been working um, in New South Wales. She came back and, and um, looked after her mother while her mother was very ill. Her mother then passed away. Lisa couldn't afford the rent in, in that um to pay for the rent in that home. Um, she had her car, which she was paying off, and, um, you know, eventually she found herself living in sort of free camps in, um, when she went back to New South Wales um, and sort of sort of slid into um, a sort of more precarious situation as time went on. This is about five years ago now. Um, and then she's, you know, reached out for some help from, from charities and the like, Um and um, eventually um, she did manage to get um, some social housing, which kind of stabilised her situation. Also meant, of course, that she had to pay rent again, so her income was reduced. But, um, yeah, she she um, she had the, the car repayments, which was sort of eating up a lot of her welfare payments, but she, she was living in that car with her two pets. And then um, she sort of continued to um, insist on, keeping this car because it had kept her safe in that period where she was out of a home before she got into social housing. Um, and then, you know, she's like, like Deborah, she's had health conditions as well. Um, uh, earlier in the year, she, she got breast cancer and had to be operated on. Um, and so, I mean, but at the same time that that happened, she, she had the coronavirus supplement. So, um, she was sort of saying, she was in the best place that she'd ever been, um, perhaps emotionally and also financially at the same time that she was going through this awful um, health um, episode in her life. So in her case, it was a kind of strange period, I would say. Mm. Yeah, she certainly had really horrible luck in terms of the health conditions she's really had to deal with one after the other as well. And um, it's interesting when you think about the how job seeker and the payment changed basically overnight during this pandemic and really did dr- dramatically alter the lives of all those who were on it and then um, those who became unemployed and needed to be on it. Um, in terms of the people that you've been speaking with, including um, Lisa, how have they recounted their experience with the payment being increased so substantially? Because um, it really has increased quite a lot. The the kind of base rate of job seeker, which the government hasn't committed to lifting in this budget that we've just seen delivered, um, means that it could actually end up reverting back to $565 a fortnight, which, as you say, is $40 a day. Mm. Um, But it had been raised, as we all know, quite substantially and made a huge difference in those people's lives. 
Um, yeah, that's right. So um, in um, in March, uh, the end of March, the government basically doubled you know, unemployment benefits or job seeker payment. It was it went up to um, you know about eleven hundred and fifteen dollars a fortnight, which is um, um, quite a significant boost. And then in um, a couple of weeks ago, it was started to taper down. It's now at about eight hundred and fifteen a fortnight. Um, that's so. Before it was, it was actually more. Um, I'm not sure if generous is the right word, but it was higher than the age pension and the disability pension. Now it's a little bit less. It's about what um, it's. It's at about what um, you know single parents uh, were receiving without the coronavirus supplement. And I mean, the 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 first thing to say is it's just made a enormous difference to people's lives, people who were struggling to make ends meet, living day to day, week to week, wondering if they were going to have enough money to pay their bills, um, you know, people who say that they skip meals in order to save money or because they just don't have enough, people who have fallen behind on rent repayments and credit card debts and the like um, in um you know, in Lisa's case, she said that it allowed her to get on top of her bills um, and gave her a bit of a breathing breathing room, breathing space. Um, Deborah said that, you know, it was nice to um, feel like you could live a normal life and um, not be stressed, um, not worry about how to spend every dollar that you get um, and gave her a sense of what her life will be like when she gets to the age pension. Um and, you know, I've spoken to other people. Um, I, there's a – give a shout-out to the a National Council for Single Mothers and Their Children who did a, um, a campaign looking at sort of the tangible effects of that money on, on the lives of single uh, mothers. Um, and they've got a um, Facebook page and Instagram page called – I think it's uh, 550 Reasons to Smile, basically. It's all these mothers who have sent in pictures of the things that they could buy because – the um, you know parenting payment single also received the coronavirus supplement, and it's things like you know um, a, fr- a full f- a fridge of uh, fresh fruit and vegetables, and the um, one mother who said that you know she got the chance to buy some um, some um, ingredients to make muffins for her, her young son on a Friday night, something they would never normally do. Another uh, mother who said she could buy some new tires for her car. Uh, another person who, um, um, you know, was able to um, buy medication that they were otherwise found difficult to afford, um, things like that. So, you know, it, it just makes oh, – and one uh, – there was also a, a, a mum who said that, you know, she was able to take her kid's bike to the bike shop and get it fixed, um, which just seems like such a small and basic thing. But for, for the, the mum and the kid, it's like, you know – made a world of difference um and being able to do that just sort of a lot of us would find that unfathomable that that would be something that you would have to think about but you know for people living on low incomes it is so you know it really made a huge difference Mm. Um, it does remind me of another program that we haven't really delved into too much and perhaps we can just mention um the situation for some people. Um, I'm thinking particularly about those who um, are participating in the Parents Next program, which is very controversial and um, has had a lot of 
pushback um, from from those parents who've been participating in it because it really does um, place a lot of burden onto them and create really um, more of a stick situation than a carrot. It kind of treats people as if they are, um, you know, not not responsible adults. Um, and there are a number of obligations that mutual obligations, as they're called in a very um, unfortunate sense, <laughs> and they have been reintroduced now for all of those people receiving those payments, except those who reside uh, in Victoria for obvious reasons. Um, it's sad to see that Parents Next won't be, you know, shelved. Mm. It seems to be ongoing. What were some of the issues with Parents Next that um, that have been problematic in the past? Um, well, I mean, I guess the whole sort of concept really is quite problematic, I suppose. Mm. But, um, you know, basically to, to distill it, um, uh, people who received single parenting payment were not con uh, considered job seekers previously because they were looking after their children. They were doing work, which is to care for their kids. Um, and, you know, the change is that they are now referred to this program, um, Parents Next, and it requires them to fulfil certain obligations, which are generally sort of studying obligations or, um, you know, what I guess could be best described as sort of um, parenting um, program obligations, activities. So some of the stories are, you know, people who um, have been told, and it's so common, to do things like take your kid to story time at the library or take your kid to play group, which are things that often these mothers, and it is predominantly mothers, would do anyway, except now these activities are um, connected to um, employment services and if you don't do them, if you forget or if you forget to go into your app your special app and say, I went to story time with my kid uh, this week, your payments will be suspended. It completely changes the, the whole relationship that um, parents and children have with these programs, which are otherwise things that people should want to do uh, mm. if, they, if they choose. Um, and then as well as that, I mean, people have been pushed into courses um education courses um, because they're told you need to do something. Um, these are pe people with children between the ages of six months old and, and I think it's four or five years old, right? So we're not talking about, and I'm not saying that this would be a good thing for people with older children, but we're not talking about people with children at the age of 10 or 15. These, some of these people have children who are incredibly young and they have a right to uh, look after their children and be with their kids at that age and they're being told, no, you have to go and do these activities under the sort of pretense that th this is how we're going to get these people back into work. A lot of these people are already studying um, of their own volition and being told, no, you have to go and do this course instead because it's on our list of approved courses. Um, yeah, it was quite um, – it, it was uh, – the government uh, just sort of decided that they're going to re-sign the contracts for this program a couple of weeks ago and uh, I know there was a lot of talk in the, about the budget and how it sort of didn't have much focus on um, helping uh, women. Um, well, one of the programs that the government includes in, in its sort of initiative for women is in fact this program, so perhaps that tells you something. It sure does. It's astounding. Um, yeah, I, I've certainly heard those stories but it is – just impossible to imagine putting such a burden on um, single mothers who are caring for, as you say, 
very um, very young children who require a lot of care and attention. And as you say, as well, when you're t- thinking about taking a child to story time, that should be a really positive experience, something that you look forward to that doesn't have this kind of governmental obligation attached to it because even if you do um, regularly go to story time by suddenly making it a requirement it does kind of put a dampener on it well that's right um and uh you know people with young children have very good reasons why they might not be able to do something on a particular day Mm. um and uh you know it's sort of Having the idea that oh well, if you don't do it, your your payments might be suspended, uh, which means that you know they might be delayed. Um, it just causes enormous headaches for somebody who's looking after you know a young child, um, you know, mostly on on their own, maybe more than one child. Um, and I guess the other thing as well is, um, you know, librarians have said that they've had people from job agencies come in to check if certain people who are, you know, they're on their books uh, in the parent sex program are at these story time um, uh, activities, which is just, you know, sort of a bizarre scenario where you have librarian running a story time uh, session at the local public library and then you have these people from a privately um, contracted job agency coming in and checking, oh, you know, this is is my person here today, like almost like some sort of surveillance. Like it's really quite disturbing to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, shocking. And one other, you know, <laughs> program on a related note that is equally as disturbing um, and very controlling is the um, cashless debit card that we had discussed in the past because it was being trialled in a couple of key areas um, and uh, it unfortunately has become solidified as a um, policy tool in this coalition government's arsenal in the welfare sector sector, and also um, does involve private providers as well. Um, we, we did discuss some of the drawbacks of the welfare card, the cashless debit card, but maybe we can set the scene again for those who didn't hear that conversation. Where was the, the debit card being trialled? Like how significant was that trial and what has the government now committed to? Um, so the, the card has been trialled in uh, Sejuna in South Australia, um, the East Kimberley and Goldfields regions of um, Western Australia, um, and then Harvey Bay in um, uh, in and um, Bundaberg in um, in Queensland, and um, basically um, it had been in place for a while. And the, the Harvey Bay uh, Bundaberg trial was the most recent um, that had been established. And um, you know the card is, is something that people who are on working age payments, so things like job seeker payment. Um, uh, parenting payment, um, and then in other places as well, disability support pension. Um, it basically quarantines some of your income that you, through your welfare payments. So up to eighty percent of your welfare payments go into this card, which can only be used um, to buy, uh, well, well, rather, which can't be used to buy things like alcohol and gambling products. Um, but the problem with that, leaving aside the broader problem of you know. Uh, sort of policing people's uh, income. The problem is that um, the way the card works at the moment, they essentially have to um, ban entire 
merchants or entire shops or, or places selling goods and services. And so many people say that the, the car just doesn't work in in, in, in some of the um, shops and restaurants in their local communities. We're talking the trial sites I mentioned there. We're not talking about big cities and towns with huge um, options, right? So, so if you if if your card if you're on a low income and your card doesn't work in a certain place that's closest to you, that's a problem. Um, aside from that, you know, people who are on low incomes need to be at the flexibility to be able to use cash to engage in. You know things like farmers markets, secondhand. Uh, you know buying secondhand products at the same time as well. The card is very unreliable. Uh, critics say in terms of things like de- uh, rent repayments, bill repayments, buying things online. So it basically just removes the flexibility that you have if you just have your money. Uh, something the rest of us take for granted. If the money is um, deposited into your bank account and you can take it out as cash or, or, or you know, use it however you wish. Um, and so the government's decision is, and this still has to pass parliament, and we don't know if that'll happen, but basically these won't be trials in these areas anymore. Um, they won't have to get parliament's approval to extend them. The trials were due to conclude at the end of the year. So if the legislation passes, the people who live in these areas um, will have the card um, for as long as they're on welfare benefits and anybody who moves on to welfare benefits will also have the card. It's kind of the first step in making this potentially a broader policy and we know that the Prime Minister and the Social Services Minister, Anne Rustin, have suggested that's their plan. Just quickly, aside from that, it would also introduced the card in the Northern Territory. There they've got something at the moment called the Basics Card, which is basically a similar concept but an even more sort of rudimentary um, version of it which was introduced during the intervention. Um, And so um, it would kind of solidify uh, the the whole of the Northern Territory as part of this cashless debit card program as well. Um, The card is... The, the current card is better than the card that has been used at the moment in the Northern Territory, but, you know, uh, critics and Aboriginal organisations, for example, argue, well, why should we be on the card at all? It was part of a sort of racist um, uh, initiative, you know, about 10, 12 years ago now. Why should an entire territory of people predominant who are, you know, with a high um, First Nations um, uh, population be subjected to this card? So that's sort of where that's at at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And it also carries a great deal of stigma as well for the people who have these cards because um, they do look different to the usual debit card one would have. Well, that's right. And that's something I should, I should have found, mentioned, actually. I mean, it, it's sort of um, the government's saying that it's uh, improving the card and trying to make it as similar to a bank card as possible. Um, people I spoke to say, well, that's not happened in my case they've you know they've still got this card which says inju on it which is the provider which uh, private company which runs the card and anybody who lives in an area where the, the trial is running who sees somebody with an inju card knows oh well, you're on benefits um mm-hmm. aside from that you know i spoke to one woman who had moved away from um um bundaberg or harvey bay rather and She's still on the card because she can't get off it. Um, she applied to get off it and they rejected her claim. She's now in a sort of 
near Bunbury in WA and she said, well, no one knows what the card is but they know it's strange and they basically think that I've been put on it by child services or something. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, that's the stigma that that applies. Um, I mean, that the government will eventually, I suspect, find a way to make it so that the card is much more user-friendly and much more uh, similar to any other bank card. But they'll do that. That's just a matter of technology and, um, you know, quote-unquote innovation. But um, whether or not that stigma still exists, there's still you're going to have this broader problem about the fact that, you know, people you know, whether or not it's correct to impose these um, sort of limits on how people spend money, which, you know, under the under the sort of social social contract that we have, this is money that people uh, are entitled to. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's yeah. the separate, separate side to it. Yeah, and it, do, it does bring up this issue of feeling like you lack agency in your own life, a feeling of, um, as one of the people who you spoke to, Emily, says it's a feeling of hopelessness and that obviously doesn't help any person's situation in feeling like they have control over their lives, control over their destiny and um, feeling like they are supported. It's certainly the government's rhetoric is that we're supporting people, but mm. it really in practice doesn't um, doesn't work that way in my view. But um, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to see how it could have a positive effect really. Well, I think the... Um there's been a very interesting shift in language which has happened over the past year or so where the government now, um, Anne Ruston, um, the social services minister, has kind of traded in some of the more harsh rhetoric of the maybe, you know, three years ago when Alan Tudge was the minister. And it, she now says that, um, you know, this is a financial literacy tool and that's that's the line rather than like there was this kind of blunt language of the past where it was sort of like, well, you know, these people are, you know, there's a high instances of drug uh, abuse and alcohol abuse in these areas, high levels of uh, quote-unquote welfare dependence, so we need this card to stamp that out. Now it's kind of being presented as a more of a sort of, it's, you know, a positive thing. I mean, clearly the people who are on the card um, uh, uh, um, find that to be quite offensive yeah. um, but that's kind of the shift in language and I suspect that if this does get through parliament which I don't know if it will because Jackie Lambie has kind of she's sort of been quite skeptical of it but if it does that will be how it's um, sold and if it there are if there are in future budgets further attempts to expand it you'll be hearing about how it's this great way of getting people to um, you know, it's a great way of ensuring that people have a better understanding of how to use the money that they're given by the taxpayer. That'll be what you hear. Oh, it's so paternalistic. I can't stand it. Um, thank you so much, Luke. You've uh, provided huge amounts of insight to us into what's happening right now, and it is um, pretty harrowing to hear about, but it's important for us to know what's happening for all Australians, particularly those who are disadvantaged right now by this pandemic and who have been um, very much disadvantaged in society previously um, and we're just seeing, I guess, the entrenching of inequality in Australia um, through the situation we're finding ourselves in now. So um, this work that you're doing is only becoming more and more important and I'm so grateful to you for doing um, doing that and shining a light on these areas. It's uh, very kind, Amy. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on to talk about it. 
it's really been so meaningful to do that. Um, I've been speaking with Luke Enriquez Gomez, and um, he is the welfare and inequality reporter at The Guardian Australia. And you can check out his work on The Guardian's website and also um, highly recommend following him on Twitter if you want to keep up with all of his work. It's Luke H. Gomez. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And uh, I'm really delighted to welcome back onto the program Dr. Chloe Ward, who is a historian and research officer at the EU Centre of Excellence based at RMIT. And she's also the co host of the Barely Getting By podcast. And um, of course, she does that podcast with her friend and colleague, Emma Shortus. Um, who's also based at the same centre and is an an Uncommon Sense regular talking about US politics. But um, we're not going to get to Trump today. We're going to get to Trump light, which is Boris Johnson, who um, certainly kind of divides people. Some people love him for his supposedly affable appearance and um, way of coming across, and others can't quite stand the way that he um, approaches any kind of policy area. So I guess it's interesting to see where some people fall in that um, that category. Maybe there's a bit more nuance when you get over to the UK, um, but uh, it's certainly in terms of the way that it's reported, he's, um, you know, widely admired by some and not so by others. So I'm welcoming back to the show, Dr. Chloe Ward, and thanks so much for coming back on to chat all things UK politics. Oh, it's my pleasure, Amy. I love these chats with you. Same. I just feel like it's a guilty little pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to talk about other countries' problems instead of our own sometimes um, because it can be quite depressing. Yeah, and I think um, the UK, they certainly have a few issues going on at the moment. It was, um, mm. I've, I've crammed some very nervous notes for you and it's got it's now running to five pages, so oh, it's a lot to get through. That sounds like me. I like it. We're both like note people. Um, yeah, it's uh, let's get right to it and get into the content then because um, maybe we should talk about what is most front of mind for many people at the moment um, and what I guess uh, the UK is dealing with in an immediate sense, and that is um, the coronavirus, which we have been seeing increase um, in terms of positive cases in the UK in recent weeks. Um, and it is in stark contrast, as a number of people have um, have pointed out in Victoria. Uh, we've seen, you know, Victoria starting at around 700 and um, obviously bringing things down to single figures with our lockdown. Uh, but the story over in the UK is really the inverse. Um, could you share with us where uh, the UK got to after their first wave? Because um, they just came out of summer, which was largely a fairly free summer eventually um, and wasn't really um, all too constrained. 
Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, if anything, it wasn't just not constrained. The government was act. The government was actively um, supporting people to go out, really encouraging them to go out with their free dinner vouchers that the Chancellor Rishi Sunak was offering. Um, also, really pushing people to think about going back to work as autumn came along. So, through the summer, they were sort of tracking, like you said, at that level that Melbourne was seeing at the beginning of its second wave. So, sort of 700, 800 cases a day. But no real, no real concerns in terms of the death rate. That's certainly gone down as treatments for coronavirus have improved. But I think what happened as summer came to a close, you know, one of the big events in the UK calendar was the return of university students to to cities, particularly provincial cities in the UK. A lot of them ended up in student halls of residence. And that's one been one of the sources of the current outbreak, which is really sweeping the whole nation, um, especially the north and the northwest of England. Yes. And for those who perhaps aren't familiar with um, the geography of uh, England, what kind of areas really um, make up these coronavirus hotspots in the north? Yeah, so a lot of cases were early on in the second wave concentrated in Newcastle, which is in the northeast of England, sort of heading towards the Scottish border. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also a lot of cases in Glasgow in Scotland itself. And then the most recent hotspot has really been in the northwest. So we're talking about places like Liverpool and Manchester, which are now about to be subject to the biggest restrictions in the UK. Um, that whole area, it kind of roughly corresponds to what a lot of people will have heard called the Red Wall, which are, you know, a lot of electoral constituencies which historically have belonged to the Labor Party but finally fell to the Tories in the 2019 general election. So it's an interesting political dynamic there because there are a lot of places that the Conservatives very recently won, but they're now being put at serious risk because of the government's handling of the coronavirus. Yeah, and um, one of the things that's interesting uh, in the the UK government's handling of this pandemic is that they've um, shifted from that complete lockdown scenario that existed when they were trying to manage the um, hospital beds and, of course, the NHS was really overrun at some point um, with those people who needed intensive care. Um, and so now we've seen this kind of three-tiered system of restrictions that's operating particularly in England. Um, How has been the response, what has been the response to that tiered system Um, and is it complex? Has it actually responded to the coronavirus hotspots in a way that is effective? Like is it being a a responsive system or are there flaws to this system that's been introduced? I think, look, the general consensus amongst the public and also amongst experts, including the experts who are advising the government, has been that this isn't the appropriate response. So it's a three-tiered system and these tiers, so you've got, I think, one which is low risk to very high risk, which is tier three. So it's applied on a regional and a local basis. But within that, people are reporting that the restrictions they're being, and the instructions they're being given are really confusing. So people are getting different messages from the NHS's official app. They're getting different messages from the government. They're getting different messages from local government about what that means in practice. So it's a way of trying to manage coronavirus while, as is always a big emphasis for the, the Boris Johnson government, while keeping the economy ticking over. But what 
the experts are saying now is that they actually need to, they can't do these half measures anymore. And the best solution to this would be to at least impose a two week, what they're calling a circuit breaker lockdown. So something similar to what we've had in Melbourne for two weeks, just to get the caseload under control and then start revising. But yeah, there's a pretty strong consensus that this system that they've got in place is confusing and probably won't work. And that's the reason why a lot of people, particularly in the North, are starting to rebel against it. Mm. And uh, one of the interesting developments around this was also the the Welsh government and their decisions um, very recently, one of which was to say that they would not be accepting travellers from uh, people within England from these coronavirus hotspots, um, but also that they would actually self-impose their own restrictions that are much harsher. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So that's only come out this morning, but it's been talked about for a couple of weeks now. So, you know, I mean, it's interesting in itself that Wales has decided to impose a border with England when mm. the cliche, we're always getting sold is that Welsh people just want to get over to England. But yeah, they're going to be imposing this two-week lockdown, I think, from next week. And that's an attempt to get, once again, to get their cases under control because the situation in Wales is nearly as dire as it is in parts of England. So I think that they're very keen to protect themselves. And, of course, that links into this issue of the union, so what the United Kingdom actually is and whether the the union itself, so the Union of England, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland is going to survive coronavirus because there's absolutely been an upsurge in Welsh nationalist feeling and in Scotland it's even, the situation is even starker. Mm, such a great point because um, I've just had a quick look at the Welsh government's website. The circuit break will begin from 6pm on Friday the 23rd of October um, and it's a, it is a very similar situation really to what we've been experiencing saying that people aren't allowed to meet socially anywhere indoors with people they don't live with, um, whether that's at home, in the pub or elsewhere. I love that that's the illustrative example. Um, and that people must not gather outdoors in groups of more than 30. So that's slightly more um, relaxed than the situation that we found ourselves in. Uh, but there are quite a few other um, examples like face coverings are mandatory in indoor spaces, which really, um, I think that has been fairly um, widely adopted in the UK, hasn't it? The ma mask wearing in indoor settings? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think um. I think that's also something that would be likely to be tested as we come into winter because they mm. obviously had a big summer that was largely spent outdoors if people were socialising. True. That's very true. Yeah, seeing um, a number of people that I know living over there, it almost, when you were seeing them outside in this beautiful sunshine and the parks, it really did look like normal life. Like it kind of was reminding me of pre-COVID times because you didn't really see anyone wearing a mask when they were outside. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I think that's, I've said this to you before, that's, I've been kind of gobsmacked by seeing yeah. a lot of British people being quite relaxed. And that goes to the other, I think the other source that we can speculate is behind this latest outbreak. So over the summer, the government was giving people a lot of assurances that they could live this new COVID normal lifestyle because they were getting their taste, test and trace system up and running. Mm. And so people were sort of coasting on that and they, they were given, given that assurance by the government. And one of the things that's become very apparent in the last few weeks, in the last month or so, has been that just isn't up to standard. It's slow, it's unresponsive, it's full of bottlenecks, whether it's people queuing up to get tests or waiting for their results. And that's a big reason why why the coronavirus is now getting out of control in the UK again. 
Mm. I wanted to ask about the involvement of private contractors in a number of the government's responses to coronavirus because it came up in the British um, episode of Q&A or their version of Question Time um, on the television um, when, you know, we see Q&A, we see these kind of um, influential public figures discussing political issues of the day, and they were talking about the fact that um, we were expecting to see this test and trace system built up to a point where, you know, we could be responsive, as you say, be flexible, um, get on top of, you know, any outbreaks that do occur. And it sounded like um, there was a great number of people who were concerned that um, a number of the functions of government had been um, outsourced. Yeah, no, not just outsourced, but outsourced to this particular government and these particular ministers' favoured, their favoured business people. So the head of the new test and trace system in the UK is a woman named Dido Harding. I think she's actually Baroness Harding, which probably mm. gives you some clue as to who she is, who's a, who has a fairly checkered history. Um, a fairly checkered business history behind her. She's also married, I believe, to a Tory MP. So she's kind of emblematic of the closeness of government with big business. And what they've done is they've handed over a lot of contracts, not just for test and trace, but for things like, P for, like PPE, to these private companies that actually have no or very little experience in public health. So, and they've been, you know, and I think it's fairly clear that they have been massive failures, but then, you can also contrast that with the, the relatively few cases where local governments, for instance, or local health authorities have been given responsibility for those test and trace functions, and they've actually been much more successful. So I think this is it's a study in contrast between, you know, handing, handing these contracts over to big private corporations to handle things on a national scale and what you can do when you're actually keeping these functions in-house and also also keeping them at a very fairly small local scale. Yeah. Um, I want to head to Scotland for a moment, um, probably because I'm biased and I love Scotland, but also because there's some interesting things happening there. The cases uh, over in Scotland are just under 1,000 a day at the moment, um, but we're also seeing the that Nicola Sturgeon has really been put in some difficult political situations recently um, that she has been criticised for in various ways, um, including that one of her own MPs um, had really broken the rules multiple times um, when she tested positive for coronavirus. She got on a train, travelled into, um, I believe it was London for Parliament, um, got back on the train and travelled back. So she broke so many different rules about um, isolating, for example, um, particularly when she found out that it was that she was COVID positive. Um, and I wanted to talk about that that instance because we later heard that um, the British police decided not to press charges against her um, and that certainly did bring up um, discussions around is there a double standard for uh, people who are politically influential like Dominic Cummings um, who we've spoken about in the past who also um, breached rules but also um, even people from the Scottish National Party who um, you know she did receive um, a reprimand by Nicola Sturgeon and there were consequences at a party level but it seems like um, there haven't been consequences at this legal level. 
Yeah, and I think I think you're absolutely right to point to that double standard. And you know, we should I should mention while we're at it that there have been a number of Labor MPs who have been caught um, flouting or ignoring the restrictions. I think when we see this, it's really you know it is it is basically the same thing. Maybe not as brazen as Dominic Cummings, you know, ticking off mm. to Durham for a weekend. But it does show a similar lack of care, not to say contempt, for the wider British public, which is having to really restrict its movements and, you know, it's, it's sections of which are really suffering under the restrictions because of coronavirus. But I think politically for Nicola Sturgeon, this just makes her mission of stoking the fires of Scottish independence all the more important. And I'm not sure that there have been or will be domestic political repercussions for her so long as, for example, the, the Labour Party continues to be so weak in Scotland, but also because, you know, the biggest issue in Scottish politics at the moment and the biggest issue that's connected to coronavirus is now independence. So as long as independence is riding high, I think the last count I saw, 58% support for Scottish independence, mm. I think that she'll be relatively protected no matter what her, you know, her, her MPs would have to do something really out there for it to touch her. Mm, yeah, it seems like um, she has really solidified her position and watching her live press conferences on Twitter, she really is performing politically very well. She's a straight-talking, um, really direct um, person who, you know, apologises when mistakes are made and then says, here's how we're going to fix the problem. Um, she doesn't, you know, engage in this, well, to an extent, probably in a in a comparative level, she doesn't engage in the same level of um, political speak that you do see people from Downing Street um, engaging in on a daily basis. And uh, I mean, obviously, part of that might be cultural because it's maybe less acceptable in Scotland to engage in that kind of thing. But it also seems like it's been a very effective tool for her own prime ministership, um, not just in this situation, but also in general. Yeah, and I, look, I actually think that there's comparison to be drawn between Nicola Sturgeon and Daniel Andrews in mm. the way that they handle and they deflect that criticism and they give the appearance of not buying into the politics while, of course, they're conscious of the politics and, of mm. course, there is a level of performance in the press conferences that they give. I think that she... Nicola Sturgeon can only benefit by drawing that that contrast, which really doesn't need to be stated. Like, she doesn't need to say, I'm not Boris Johnson, I'm not yes. that floppy-haired idiot. <laughs> she can just, just by presenting herself as competent, as self-critical and as, you know, as caring about the Scottish population, she is leaving that comparison uh, available to her constituents and I think it's it's working for her. Mm. Um, I should give everyone an update because uh, the figures have changed since I last saw them. So it's um, 1,351 people tested positive for COVID-19 in Scotland in the last 24 hours, which is 17.6% of those who were tested. Um, and a further 13 people have died overnight um, with COVID-19. There are 601 patients in hospital and 51 in intensive care. So for a population that's actually not that large... Um, that is quite like high figures. Yeah, no, it is. And I think that that's one of those ones. And I'm, I mean, I'm kind of reticent to trace it right back to this because I think this is just, this might be an effect of 
the news coverage that I've been reading, but there were serious concerns, particularly in Glasgow, when all those when there was that outbreak in student accommodation. Mm. Um, and I think that that's one of the sources of this. And it's also but that's also I think that's also a place where there might be risks for someone like Nicola Sturgeon because it does certainly look misguided to allow students back, um, remembering that Scottish universities are a devolved power to Scotland. Um, so letting students come back. And also there are lots of concerns about the, the level of care that they've received since they've been locked up in those university halls. Mm. Um, it, it does make sense when you're thinking about how this spreads um, and the fact that, you know, it's enclosed spaces where people gather, um, you know, for example, universities. And of course, that is where adults are. And we know that um, schools can be a place where it spreads, but it seems more likely to be where adults um, gather in large groups. So uh, given that university in the UK is really just coming back, um, it will be interesting to see how that affects their tertiary education system as well. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I'm in contact with a fair few academics in the UK and I think a lot of them are quite outraged at at the decision to send students back on campus for this, mm. this academic year um, because, you know, it's not, keeping, it's not keeping university teachers safe, it's not keeping students safe unless you have adequate protections and provisions to support students through the crisis. And there is also a lot of suspicion that a big reason why students were sent back on campus was precisely because of those privately run university halls of residence, which were going to face enormous losses if they lost their student population in this academic year. So again, it's one of those instances where we can see that strong influence for private corporations on British public life and how it impinges on public health measures. Mm. Yeah, there are certainly vested interests that um, are becoming more and more obvious as the days go on. Um, one of the other criticisms of the government has been the fact that they're not providing the same level of financial support to businesses, for example, um, and individuals who um, who need wages who might be under the Tier 3 closures. So, for example, if businesses are being forced to close um, under Tier 3 closures, that um, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, has said that just 67% of wages would be paid to those affected by those tier closures rather than the 80% that applied under the furlough scheme that began in March. Um, so it seems like there is this argument that if you are going to force closures upon us again, you're going to have to provide the requisite uh, economic support yeah, no, absolutely. And that's the argument that Andy Burnham, who is the mayor of Greater Manchester, is making. And he effectively has the government over a barrel now because they announced tier three restrictions for the Greater Manchester area. And despite the fact that he formally has no power to do this, Andy Burnham and his council have said, we're not complying with that. You have to give us more. You have to give us adequate financial supports to our constituents if we're going to sign up for this. This is this is one of those ways in which the, you know, the kind of the divided, the map of England for coronavirus, it kind of maps onto economic divisions in the UK. So when we're talking about areas in the north, I think I read that Liverpool, which is another coronavirus hotspot, has a real unemployment rate of 19%. They have much mm. higher proportions of their population that are dependent on welfare and, and income support. So these, you know, these tier three restrictions are going to absolutely destroy 
not just the economy, but the livelihoods and welfare for a lot of people in these areas. And that's uh, proved a really potent line of attack for Andy Burnham. And he's really he's really got the government against the wall now on that. Yeah. And these have been in kind of industrial centres as well, places where um, you have seen a lot of blue collar industries for a long time in the UK. Yeah, no, that's right. And it's um, it is reflective of the changing economic composition of the UK, where when it was a producing nation, when it was an industrial nation that was very dependent on on that production, they had those those regions had a lot more political power. But since Thatcherism and since the real shift in the UK economy to financial services, very much concentrated on London and the south of England, they've been kind of left left hung, to left hanging, and they're really you know one of the rewards that the Labour Party reaped for inattention to the North was in the 2019 general election. That was the result of 20 years of neglect um, by Labour MPs. But now that new crop of Conservative MPs, I think they're about to face a bit of reckoning on that on that score too. Mm. Um, I want to shift into another area which is really um, becoming quite an area of uh, drama um, caused by really the British government itself. Um, there are a number of issues that um, have been brought up given that Brexit um, is still needing to be negotiated, at least the deal with the EU, um, and those negotiations have been ongoing for quite a while now. Um, but we have seen the British government and Boris Johnson in particular make quite a lot of threats and um, engage in a lot of grandstanding during these negotiations. Um, the government has recently kind of said, oh, well, um, you know, we're not resuming trade negotiations with the EU. Um, we're not, you know, we're going to wait. And, and there seems to be this kind of argy-bargy between the two camps um, with Boris Johnson threatening to do uh, some potentially illegal things that would actually breach the deal that had been made in October 2019 as well. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's 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 not it's not <laughs> no. that funny, I guess. Um, so what you're referring to there, Amy, is the Internal Market Bill, which was passed by the British by the British government in the last couple of weeks, I believe. But basically, what that does is it gives the it gives Britain it gives the UK the right to unilaterally change um, aspects of things like the Northern Ireland Protocol, which if anyone remembers as far back as, you know, as October-ish 2019, that was the last, you know, big mm. big Brexit drama when they were trying to reach an agreement, get to a withdrawal agreement. So what that does in theory, that internal market bill, it puts the UK in contravention of international law. And the EU is now pursuing them. They're now they're now prosecuting the UK over this. So that's kind of a big unresolved issue that's hanging over the Brexit talks. And it really does, I think it shows how little regard this government really has for the EU and for the integrity of its future relationship, its future trading relationship with Europe. And do you think that the EU has a likelihood of being able to pursue them properly through, you know, international legal courses? I'm I'm not sure. Um, I've got to say this is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, but my my reading of it, and from what I understand, is that this is as much a political gesture as it is a legal one. So the EU will always will often make moves like this in the hope that that will be enough to make 
Britain backtrack on on Mm. its plans. It seems like that's unlikely, though, given Boris Johnson's track record. Yeah, and I think um, the interesting question around around a trade deal with the with the EU, which is what this is all this is all circling around, and that's something that needs to be concluded by mid-November if it's going if they're going to make it to the end of the year deadline for a no-deal Brexit. Um, I think there's a real question about whether Boris Johnson or whether it's in Boris Johnson's personal interests to actually get that deal. So it's hard to read his intentions there. It is. Um, I was just looking at a section of that bill that we're talking about, and I know that sounds horribly boring, but if you read the relevant section, it's kind of shocking to actually see what it's trying to get out of because um, there's a whole list of domestic and international laws that it's um, basically saying that this law can override. So it says that um, the the particular laws it could override are any provision of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which you've just mentioned, any other provision of the EU withdrawal agreement, and any other EU law or international law, any provision of the European Communities Act, any provision of the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018, and it goes on. So do you know what I mean? It seems like a very broad brush approach yeah, and that's absolutely been the criticism from a lot of legal experts, that it is a broad brush that probably isn't taking into account all its full ramifications in law, and that's what the EU will be pursuing. It is, once again, it's, you know, this, and I think Boris Johnson very much thinks in terms of these gestures to his public at home um, much more than he thinks about, you know, the probity of legislation that he passes. This is coming back to that big issue that came up in the Brexit referendum in 2016, and that's about English, British, but I think more specifically English sovereignty. So how much control England has over its laws and over, and over its its actions. Mm. And it does seem like that is something that's, you know, become a very much an ideological focus of the government is to keep reinforcing their ability to to have control, even if it's just the appearance of control. Um, I wanted to ask about those Brexit negotiations because there are a number of sectors, including the pharmaceutical sector, that are very nervous about the prospect of a no-deal Brexit. What are the potential implications if Boris Johnson doesn't back down and if they don't really negotiate in good faith with the EU? Yeah, so what happens at, and you know, it varies sect by sector and even product by product, but what happens on at the end of the year, so on December 31st, if the there isn't a trade deal drawn up, is the UK will revert back to WTO rules. So there will be tariffs at the border. There will be, there will be checks on goods coming into the UK. Um, I think that even if they do get a deal, there will be some holdups at those borders. So we're thinking of ports like Dover, but that will become, but things will really slow down if they come, if they come to that point. And that's why a lot of industries and the pharmaceutical industry is a really good example. That's why they are very nervous about the possibility of a no deal Brexit. And to be honest, I think, I think they will get a deal. Um, I think that there are a lot of things that we don't see or hear, particularly on the EU side, um, because we're all, you know, relentlessly focusing on Boris Johnson's bluster. Uh, but I do think this is too serious then not to come up with something by mid-November. Mm. Um, also coming back to Labor, 
in the UK. What has their kind of um, approach been to the government? Um, Because I think over here in Australia, there's been a bit of criticism about um, Labor being quite ineffective um, as an opposition in terms of criticising the government when they have engaged in such blatant disregard for rules, when there is um, ideology that's just being, you know, that's driving policy decision-making. And I wonder, given that you've highlighted the fact that there are these, you know, contracting decisions being made, for example, that do favour Tory business friends, um, what's Labor's role been during this pandemic in providing um, an effective opposition? Yeah, I think they their strategy has been, I think, to, well, Keir Starmer's strategy has been to take it one issue at a time. So you actually, you don't see much of him criticising the handing out of these private contracts because, and I think that's partly because Keir Starmer is trying to soothe a lot of people's nervousness, um, trying to make himself out to be the, a much more centrist, for want of a better word, figure than his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. But he and the Labor Party have certainly leapt on this issue around the, the possibility of a circuit breaker lockdown. So they're really pushing Johnson and his government hard on that. And I think that's partly because they have, you know, they have the backing both of public opinion. So I think like 67% of the British public surveyed favour that two-week circuit break the lockdown we talked about as a possibility. It's also got the endorsement of the government's expert advisors. So they're picking and choosing their issues. And at the moment, they've landed on a really potent one in the issue of responding to the second wave and whether they'll have that circuit breaker. Mm, it seems like a sensible approach to be taking, and at least it's something that is uh, quite winnable if they can get you know public opinion on their side as well. Um, one of the things that was um, interesting over well overnight, I guess, is that um, Labor MP Yasmin Qureshi has been admitted to hospital with pneumonia after testing positive for COVID nineteen, and she represents um, Bolton South East. Um, she started feeling unwell two weeks ago um, and obviously has now been admitted to hospital. So, you know, it seems like the, the coronavirus in the UK, although I think um, it's clear to say is affecting people in these lower socioeconomic areas, for example, like Glasgow um, in Scotland, but it is also, you know, affecting everyone across the whole of society. And I wondered, um, what's the public debate like over there in terms of the validity of the science? Are they having the same kind of pushback from their population about, you know, mask wearing and, um, and you know, the rules around distancing and that kind of thing? Uh, not so much. Um, they have had a few anti-lockdown protests and anti-mask protests in London. I don't... You know, and I think this, this again, this is probably, my view of this is probably a little bit skewed by Twitter, but I don't think it's nearly as toxic as, it's not as toxified as it, as it has become here. I think that, you know, there's potential for that if they do have a second lockdown or if they do ramp up these measures in the coming weeks. What I'm seeing is a lot of people are making an argument around the fairness of lockdowns. And that comes back to this issue of the tiered lockdowns, of having these, you know, these blanket restrictions on areas of the north as opposed to areas of the south. And I think there's an emerging sense that if you're going to take these radical steps, then you need to apply them to everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's also, that's another area where there is potentially a lot of, a lot of 
ground to be made up by the Labour Party and particularly by people like um, like Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, who is a Labour mayor. Yeah, well, it does remind me of Victoria in this second wave where initially it was shutting down hotspots um, and then it was shutting down, you know, Metro Melbourne and then it kind of had to go to, you know, the whole of Victoria. So, um, you know, it seems like unless you're jumping on a cluster straight away, and it's just one or two, and it's confined to one area, it's kind of highly unrealistic to think that those people haven't been travelling to other areas within the state or, for example, within the UK. The UK is a highly mobile place and it's not very difficult to get from one side of the country to the other. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I think that... um I think that there's also a real risk because, you know, they've been having this debate about a circuit breaker lockdown for, I think, it must be two weeks now. And you do really wonder if they're going to miss their opportunity to really clamp down on the virus because they do continue to to argue about it. And there are still these debates and there are still these half measures going on. It's there's I think there's every risk that it could get out of their control and there won't be a blanket measure that's available to them that could really bring it under control in time for the winter. Mm, yeah, and as we know, um, given the winter, if you're indoors and you know not in ventilated spaces and with other people, um, it certainly can get out of control. So um, it's something to be looking at and to be keeping in mind. And I guess to finish this conversation, it might be helpful to let people know the scale of what the coronavirus has done in the UK. There's been overall 741,000 positive cases and um, 43,726 deaths. Um, So we're seeing about 80 deaths every day at the moment in the UK. And, um, you know, 43,000 is a huge figure. Yeah, it is. And I think it's, it's, they're now tracking at about 16,000 cases a day. There were 19,000 on one day last week. I think that the NHS is fairly confident that they won't be, they'll be able to keep the death rate under control in the coming months. But of course, with every case, that risk increases. So they really do need to be working very hard to get it under control. And, you know, I'm a little bit pessimistic at the moment about whether they have a government that is willing to take the steps that are necessary to do that. Yeah. And the other thing to point out is that um, deaths are one figure, but there's also those who are left with the after effects of coronavirus, Um, the the so-called long-haul Um, cohort of those who've tested positive to coronavirus, and they do count in the people in their 20s, their 30s, 40s, 50s and upwards. So um, even if you don't see huge numbers of deaths, there are going to be a number of problems with those who will suffer ongoing effects. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, that's another conversation that needs to be had about how you can effectively shield people who are particularly vulnerable to coronavirus. The other thing we shouldn't forget is that there is a lot of suspicion and rumour swirling that the Prime Minister himself could be one of those long COVID sufferers. So a lot of people are speculating that Boris Johnson has never fully recovered from his coronavirus, the coronavirus he contracted back in March or April. So whether that has an impact on his political fortunes in the coming weeks is an open question. Mm, yes, that was really interesting to see that. Um, it isn't totally unfounded either. It's it's still it is based on some kind of clear signs. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly struggling a bit. So I I do wonder if um there's not the possibility that if if his mishandling of Brexit and his mishandling of coronavirus come to backfire on him, if he might just you know possibly gracefully step aside because of those because of those symptoms. 
but that's pure speculation. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be very interesting to uh, to follow that. And of course, it all will all happen in December at the end of December when they're in the thick of winter, and also seeing whether that Brexit deal does come to pass or not. Um, thanks so much, Chloe. It's been a pleasure to chat with you again, and um, yeah, talk about some you know pretty complex issues over in the UK, um, and uh, yeah, to kind of get a sense of what's happening elsewhere in the world. Yeah, thank you, Amy. It's my pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And I'm really delighted to be welcoming back onto the show Professor Michelle Arrow. She's a historian and um, works at Macquarie University. She has uh, done some brilliant work recently, which you may be familiar with. Um, she released a book out through New South Books called The 70s. And I had the real pleasure of chatting with Michelle about that book. Um, gosh, I feel like maybe it was a year ago. I'm not quite sure now. And, uh, and Michelle won the 2020 Ernest Scott Prize for her book, The 70s. And that is a really um, very important prize in history writing, academic history writing. And Michelle gave a speech or a lecture, I should say, um, for that prize, which is actually up online, so you can listen to that and um, and hear what Michelle has to say about the 70s, and you can also listen back to the interview that I did with Michelle, um, which is up on the Uncommon Sense podcast if you want to revisit the wonder of the 70s. Um, but I want to welcome back Michelle and say thank you so much for returning. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I just had the best time chatting with you last time and uh, I know it was about a different topic but um yeah it was just so fascinating to to learn about the 70s and to hear stories that hadn't really been associated with that decade you know we had an understanding broadly about you know these really progressive social change movements that were occurring in the 70s but your book I think really brought home to me just all of the different kind of things that were happening within the women's movement, for example, um, but also, you know, the gay liberation movement. There were so many fascinating things happening at that time that um, perhaps the nuance has been lost a little bit. Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the things that made writing that book possible and sort of also really exciting was the ability to kind of bring a bring some of those lesser-known aspects to the forefront and kind of say, look, we remember the dismissal and we remember Malcolm Fraser and Whitlam as the kind of big antagonists of the 1970s. But actually when you delve in a little bit deeper, you can find some some under-explored aspects of the story. And the Royal Commission on Human Relationships was, for me, the kind of core um, archive for the book. And it was also a way of investigating some of those social changes sort of away from the headlines, kind of thinking about the ways that they impacted on people's lives. And some of the feedback I've had from the book has been kind of a sense of gratitude to kind of restore some of those aspects of the of the 70s story back into the narrative that may have been overlooked. So it was a mm. great pleasure to, to write. I mean, we did talk about a year ago, I think, maybe even a bit yeah. more. Could have been longer. I'm not sure now. I probably should check, but I just feel like time has lost all meaning now. So, 2020, right? It's a very... Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's certainly been challenging. And I know it's been challenging for universities on a number of levels as well. I did want to ask about the situation outside of Victoria because I wondered whether it was different at all. I have seen, you know, protests um, on campus at different you know, universities across different states for various reasons. One was a, a refugee protest. Um, another one was at, I think it was Sydney University. Um, they all had to socially distance at that protest outside. But um, there was a protest about these university funding changes that at the time were just a proposal. Um, so it seems like there has been some kind of in-person activity at universities outside of Victoria, but I wasn't quite sure how much. Yeah, there has been, and I think it has been extremely difficult for both staff and students to organise in an environment like this where social distancing is obviously important. For example, at my campus, um, you know, you can't run a union meeting with all of the staff who are union members on campus who can come and gather in one central place. And so that's meant, you know, Zoom meetings, which, of course, inhibits certain kinds of discussion and makes that much more difficult. Um, there have been some in-person protests in, in a number of campuses, but it's also been, you know, it's been more difficult to protest and to organise in a way that it wasn't so much in, say, 2014 when the proposal for $100,000 degrees was um, being floated by the, um, by the then Abbott government. So in some ways I think the government has been able to capitalise on the situation where it has been more difficult to organise. And also, I think, too, we've seen that the police have been much more willing to um, arrest people or, you know, to break up protests in quite violent ways. And we saw that quite shocking footage last week of Simon Rice at the University of Sydney, a distinguished professor of law, being knocked to the ground by police. And so I think it's been, uh, there have been some strong disincentives, shall we say, for protesting and organising in, in official ways. Yes, and I mean, this is something that um, makes a campus what it is, is the fact that um, it is an intellectually free place to have debates and to um, argue about politics. And um, when I've discussed the university funding issues um, in our regular federal politics segment, we've often talked about what might be motivating these changes. And um, often in a policy sense, it seems like on the face of it, there's been a lot of decision-making recently that's been less about uh, careful evidence-based policy decision-making, um, understanding what the, the real-life repercussions might be, um, and instead more of an ideological, uh, ideologically motivated um, plan. And, and it doesn't seem like it's a kind of standalone feature. It seems like the university sector in particular has been under a lot of pressure and strain across years and years. It seems like it's been very slowly whittled away in terms of its access to funding, um, in terms of even research grants and the, the understanding that the minister might have about the ARC grants process and how they are selected. And of course, we've had many controversies in the past around that as well. So putting this these funding changes into that context does seem to give it a kind of different meaning. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting about, I mean, in, in terms of thinking about recovery from big economic 
challenges, you know, World War II and post-war reconstruction. You know, universities have been central to those big nation-building, rebuilding moments in the past. And it's interesting that I think that the government, on the surface of the job-ready graduates package, it kind of is trying to say, look, we're addressing areas of unemployment shortages and, and you know, kind of it's based on this premise that humanities and, and social sciences, arts graduates are not somehow job-ready and so we're going to make your students pay more to undertake those degrees because they're not as well prepared for the job marketplace if they undertake those degrees. But I think any cursory glance at the evidence, and I mean, we can take the 2020 Graduate Outcomes Survey, which basically shows there's almost no difference in the employability of arts, humanities and social science graduates and maths, science and, and STEM graduates. You know, so on the basis of, you know, if you think about it in terms of evidence-based policymaking, that evidence, the very premise of the whole package, doesn't really hold up. It is much more of a kind of preconceived notion. It's an idea that's out there in the population. But the, and you know, many lobby groups and peak bodies have kind of put a lot of energy and effort into kind of undermining that myth, but it persists. And the government has actually built policy on the basis of this myth, which I think is really pernicious and, and unfortunate because it does, it isn't going to just be a kind of intellectual exercise, it's actually going to have some pretty serious real-world consequences, um, particularly for those people who are planning to undertake university study next year. You know, if you think about a recession, I mean, I went to university, started university in the last big recession in the early 1990s, and universities are, should be humming in recessions because they are a place where people can re retrain, they can skill up for a, popular, uh, for a, a career change or a new job. Um, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen in this, you know, this recession because a lot of the ideas that underpin the policy don't necessarily play out in the workforce. And also some of the um, funding decisions of this um, package will actually give less money per student to some of the areas that are going to see a growth in jobs. So nursing students, um, teaching, engineering, allied health, the universities will get less money per student to teach those courses than they did under the old funding regime. So... I think a lot of people have raised questions with this funding package, you know, with this, this set of funding cuts. I confess I am still a little bit baffled by them all, to be honest, because <laughs> I don't think they make sense. They're not coherent unless you read them through the prism of ideology. Yeah, that's exactly it. It, it doesn't make logical, rational sense. Um, they say that they're prioritising those STEM areas because they believe that's where the growth will be in the economy and where jobs will be. Uh, but we are seeing that, as you say, in those areas, science, engineering and IT, the amounts that students um, pay for those degrees or pay for those, um, you know, yearly subjects, et cetera, will, the, the funding will be cut from $9,527 a year to $7,950. So it's about a $1,500 difference that these universities, including the Group of Eight, have been saying means that they aren't going to be able to provide the same quality of education to these students in degrees that require, um, you know, high-tech equipment. Like these are areas that require constant maintenance of equipment, new equipment, and if the funding is cut in these areas, well, you know, you're almost um, shooting yourself in the foot. Yes, exactly. And, I mean, one of the things that is perverse about this package is that even though um, the government is saying we don't want arts graduates, they're not job ready. Universities actually now have a massive incentive to enrol arts, humanities and social science students because they will make more money per student from them. 
So again, you know, there's a sort of set of weird conflicting objectives that are at play in this policy. And as you say, the, the kind of science um, STEM subjects are more expensive to teach, but if you cut the funding per student, um, the, the quality of education will be diminished. So it really is squeezing the university in multiple places, of course, because this represents an overall funding cut to universities right at the point where we could think in another policy set of policy settings reinvesting in, in university education at a moment when the nation needs it. You know, that's, a, that's the sort of sad part about this, I think, is that, you know, I mean, obviously there are other issues around employability. I mean, you know, they might choose to restore funding to the CSIRO, for example, you know, the funding that's mm. been in the last few years. There are all kinds of reasons why STEM graduates might not be finding the employable outcomes that they would hope for. But I also think it, it sets these two sets of disciplines in opposition to each other, which is kind of pointless as well, because, I mean, obviously we understand that STEM needs the humanities and humanities needs STEM. You know, I can think of lots of kinds of places where the two overlap. I mean, we can look at the kind of big social media companies and look at the ways that they operate in a kind of humanities graduate-free zone and think about the kinds of problems that those networks and those companies have produced socially that they might have been avoided, those mistakes might have been avoided if they'd had a few more humanities graduates and people with expertise in sociology or gender studies or other things that to kind of um, provide some ethical and kind of hum humanist uh, oversight into their processes. So, you know, I think the idea of setting the two in opposition to each other is really unproductive as well um, yeah. and particularly helpful. Mm. And certainly we've heard from key figures in society, including um, the Nobel laureate and immunologist Professor Peter Doherty, who also said that now is not the time to target and reduce the study of the humanities um, because actually the study of humans and social issues has never been more important than now. So, you know, he um, being such a, an important figure in the science and research sector in Melbourne, but also globally, has pointed out just how detrimental this will be to society, but also to STEM. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that's been striking to me as an historian is looking at you know, we're currently going through this kind of once-in-a-century event, you know, a global pandemic. We haven't had one since, you know, the Spanish flu pandemic in the early 20th century. And, I mean, one of the things about that is that, yes, that's a it's an epidemic, it's a scientific, you know, event, whatever, but it's also a historical event. And kind of historians have been everywhere kind of explaining these times to us and kind of helping us understand our present predicament through the lens of the past. And also I think that we we underestimate the value of the humanities in terms of responding to an epidemic. We need humanities expertise in understanding, for example, how to communicate about COVID safety in multiple languages. We need humanities expertise in kind of understanding the ways that people respond in situations of insecure work. Like I can think of 20 different ways, you know, the gendered impact of COVID on, on men and women, you know, there are lots of different ways in which we need the expertise, not just of the, you know, epidemiologists and the people who are developing the vaccines and all of those things, but we need that humanities expertise as well. So, you know, I mean, it is, it's fascinating to me that we are kind of just disregarding one side of that in this equation when clearly we need all of it. Yeah. And as you've pointed out, now is the opportune time for people who might be out of work for a different, for various reasons, to decide to go back to university and to pursue 
maybe it is a passion that they didn't get a chance to pursue. Maybe they started a degree previously and didn't get to finish it. Um, and there are, I think, a lot of stories that we saw when these changes were initially announced. And I mean, I personally was quite angered by it um, because it was so irrational, but also because it would have such effects on those who haven't been to university. Perhaps their their family has never had the chance to go to university. And, um, you know, we do see, as we've heard in these debates, uh, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds choosing areas like the arts, business and law. So these are these, and those are the degrees where, you know, the price will go up. Um, in some cases in humanities, it will double and it will lead to long-term debt that, that a person will have to pay off across their lifetime. But it's also potentially going to provide a disincentive where there are already disincentives um, and already disadvantages in terms of entering university in the first place. Absolutely. And look, Dan Golding has written a fantastic piece for a, a website called The Shot, which kind of, I think he describes it. He says, I can't pound the alarm loudly enough about what's going on here, that this is a huge problem. And I think one of the things I found very frustrating in the debate around the fee changes was that there wasn't a lot of direct opposition to the kind of massive fee hikes. I mean, for an arts graduate, they will be double, you know, their, their university fees will double from something like $20,000 to more than between somewhere between 40 and 50. And that is a huge debt burden to put on a 21 or 22 year old to kind of head out into their first career and know that before they can even think about doing anything, traveling or, you know, kind of buying a house or whatever, if that's what they want to do, they've got to deal with this huge debt. You know, it's a massive mm imposition on young people. And I think it's a really unfair one too. I mean, there's a few things. There's the generational inequity of it because a lot of the people who were implementing this policy are themselves arts graduates. Dan Tian is an arts graduate. He probably got his, you know, degree for a low fee, um, you know, hex fee rather than free necessarily, although a lot of older people, of course, got their, their degrees for free. And then they're imposing this huge debt on young people, which is just really unfair. I mean, this is the class of 2020 who've already been through a massive bushfire crisis and a global pandemic. And then we've doubled their uni fees, you know, when they're going off to uni. But I think one of the other things that, you know, was sort of said in the debate was like, oh, well, the price signal doesn't really impact on the ways that people choose their degree. And I think that's probably to an extent true because I do think people, a lot of the time, people will choose to do the thing that they're best at, the thing that they're familiar with, the thing they've been working towards with their senior year university subjects. Um, but I think this idea of a price signal, I mean, the idea that people will ignore a price signal only works when it's a modest enough price signal. We've never pushed it to $40,000, $50,000 for an arts degree before. And so I think it will lock some people out of tertiary education, or at least it will lock them out of the degree that they most want to do. And it's kind of ridiculous to suggest that someone who's, I mean, like me, who avoided maths in senior yeah. school would suddenly go, oh, well, a maths degree is cheaper. I'll do that. You know, exactly. it just doesn't. It doesn't work that way. I mean, I think people are not going to put three years of time in. I mean, when I see parents at open day, you know, with their, their kids and, and the kid is often the one who wants to do, you know, history or, or whatever at university and the parents are always worried, well, what are they going to do? How are they going to, you know, what career will they have at the end? And I always say, you know, they're likely to do best and persist with the subject that they're passionate about, with the subjects that they enjoy. And so I always think it's better to learn the transferable skills that a BA gives you through something that excites you, you know, most mm. you're most excited about. And when you think about 
the set of skills that people emerge from arts degrees with, with critical thinking, with um, the ability to communicate persuasively, to evaluate evidence. You can learn that through medieval theology or you can learn it through gender studies. You know, there's there's sort of limitless ways in which you can kind of engage with, with arts and culture and humanities and society to kind of understand those skills. And I think, too, arts has been a gateway degree for a lot of people. It's often the way that people who've not been at university before can kind of begin university study, people who are first in their family to go to university as I was, um, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds. I mean, we are potentially locking a lot of people out of higher education and it's a big experiment. We just don't know what the impacts will be. We don't know how what minds will be changed by this big loss. Mm. And I think, too, one of the things about the debate, I think a lot of people particularly, you, you know, when you're a prospective university student, you don't necessarily think about the money because you're 18 and you're like, well, I can put it on hex and it will, you know, appear later on. But this debate has really raised the question of the $50,000 arts degree a lot and I do wonder if that's going to have an impact. So I think it's it's a big experiment and it's a big risk, I think, in placing university study out of the reach of so many people and I think Jackie Lambie's intervention in this debate was by far the most powerful of the whole entire episode because she really drove down to that core point you know do we really want to make poor people dream a bit cheaper you know and Mm. I thought we're just cut to it in a way that very few people managed yeah uh, in that whole debate her speech was very memorable. I um I did recommend people watch it, and I still do. So if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Um, it is up evil, easily found online, and um, she does say that you know, she, are we saying to our young people just dream a little bit cheaper? And um, it was interesting when we're talking about what tips a person over in terms of what they end up choosing. It's it's like as you say, so many people who find their passion in the humanities and the arts. I mean. Yeah, maybe some of them will do maths methods in year 12, but a lot of them will choose not to because you only have to do it up to year 11 and that means you're not eligible for entry into a number of other degrees. But also, um, you know, even my own homeroom teacher had said to me, oh, you're not going to do an arts degree, are you? You know, that's just a useless degree. You're not going to get anything out of that. You're not going to be, you know, you're not going to get a job from that. And I did see so many of my um, fellow students end up choosing fields like education and nursing, the the kind of female-dominated professions, and not things that they were actually passionate about. There were very few um, people who chose to do medicine or to do arts, um, some of the more, you know, the less likely um, kind of less the, the longer term, less practical options, like you could be a nurse or a midwife, you know, very quickly and study up in um, Deakin, for example. So, you know, there are, there are multiple kind of decision points in a young person's life as to what trajectory they're going to take. And I think this just adds one extra kind of um, factor that maybe wasn't a factor before, but could become one uh, an unfortunate factor um, in the future. One thing I wanted to ask you in particular, um, is also from a staff perspective, uh, because this really has become um, something that a lot of staff are very concerned by. And also, I think a lot of 
higher education students are concerned by. So the postgraduate students feel as if they have been also quite ignored in this pandemic. Um, and I think, and I'm wondering about your perspective, whether those people who would study a bachelor degree and then decide that they wanted to do a master's or a PhD, do you think this might provide a disincentive to do that, A, because, you know, a master's will add further debt, or B, because um, if you do a PhD, there's even less likely to have, for example, academic job prospects, given that um, academics are now facing a, a great number of cuts at their universities? Yeah, and I think it's been pretty devastating for postgraduate students because I think they feel like they've invested quite a bit of time and quite a lot of intellectual and personal and emotional energy into their higher degrees. And then they're looking around them and seeing, you know, academic workforces are being cut everywhere. I mean, I think a figure I've read so far is that there have been about 12,000 job cuts in the tertiary, in the university sector this year, and they think there might be about, that might go up to about 21,000 by the end of the year. So I think already, uh, job prospects for academic, you know, for academic job prospects were pretty slim, and they're looking almost non-existent at this point. And I think, um, you know, the kind of mass casualisation of a lot of university teaching work, I think, is also another disincentive because that work, you know, um, casual teaching work is really rewarding, and of course, university teaching work is tremendously enjoyable. But if it's not well paid, and you know you're having to work across multiple campuses to you know keep your head above water, then that's something that not a lot of people can sustain for very long because it's just a really tough life, and it's not very well paid. Mm. Um, particularly after the amount of work that people have put into training. So one of the things I'm sort of trying to emphasize with our students is, is kind of think about your plan B and think about what other kinds of possibilities there are for the work that you want to do. Because of course, PhD graduates are still incredibly employable. They have just demonstrated that they can master um, a very large body of work, that they can produce an original piece of writing, you know, all of those things that organize their time, you know, self-motivated, all of those things. It's very, it's a really important demonstration of skill. But of course, you know, um, I think it's probably raised some bigger questions about training for postgraduates because we've always trained more PhD students than we can possibly employ in universities and that's not a bad thing because of course we know that PhD graduates go out into the world and do lots of different things but I think students are feeling very uncertain because they just say well maybe their supervisor has been made redundant or maybe their supervisor mm at the university so it just has increased the feelings of uncertainty and insecurity within the whole system um and you know there are certain ways that the pandemic has been recognized some people have been given a bit of extra time on their candidature and things like that but it's it's very hard i think to maintain optimism particularly when we just don't quite know what the future holds at this point i think in a few years time the international student market may recover although we don't know yet um, but I think there will be some pretty significant long-term changes that are going to emerge from the not just the pandemic, but of course the, the government's changes to funding. Yeah. Um, just finally, Michelle, uh, in a I guess a short <laughs> brief time that we've got left, um, are you able to share with us why you love studying history, why you love engaging in the practice of history, which is one of those disciplines mm -hmm. um, under threat in the humanities? Yeah. Look, I was one of those you know, students who was first in family. I had some aunts who'd gone to do teaching qualifications, but neither of my parents had been to university. And I guess I was, I sort of 
in school I was good at history. I enjoyed history most of all. I enjoyed the fact that, and I enjoyed Australian history, which makes me slightly <laughs> off in school, high school classroom anyway. Um, I just loved this sort of way that it could kind of help me understand the world around me, you know, and by the world around me I meant the lives of my family and my town and my local, you know, community, I suppose, and the sort of national, you know, political scene, I suppose, as well. And I remember when I got my HSC mark, I got enough um, to, to do my, you know, Bachelor of Arts, which is what I wanted to do, but I also got the exact mark that you could get to get into dentistry. And I remember my father saying to me, <laughs> he said, you should think about it. And I was like, you know what, that's really not for me. I am not going to be a dentist. So I had my moment of choice between the humanities and STEM mm -hmm. <laughs> and I chose history, um, not necessarily thinking that I would be, you know, job ready at the end of it. This is the kind of interesting bit. I did it because I was passionate about it and because I was good at it, I was able to kind of continue with it. And I know that I'm not a typical case study now because I know that there are not a lot of academic jobs in history. But I have never regretted the kind of um, undergraduate degree of a very broad education in, you know, lots of different humanities subjects, not just history. Um, but I love it because it kind of helps me explain my world to myself and to my students and to my family it kind of gives me a framework and a set of questions that I think are incredibly useful to understand all kinds of things not just the past but my present as well so I I'm always incredibly grateful for the history education that I had and and that's partly why I'm so passionate about it because I just want that for other people I would like that to anybody who wants it should be able to access it yeah Michelle, it's been fantastic to chat with you and for you to really bring home the issues about this in terms of the university funding changes and the threats to the humanities. And I'm really grateful for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.